Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way to our clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. In today's episode, Jacqueline Wilmar, LMSW CTP, has graced us with her presence. Jacqueline Wilmar, LMSW CTP, is currently working in the role of psychotherapist within community care in Alabama. Her role involves working with veterans and their families, dealing with various mental health issues, especially those pertaining to trauma, grief, and anxiety. Her goal is to help guide her clients through trauma-informed therapy in a compassionate and empowering manner. She graduated with her bachelor's and master's degree in social work from Troy University. She is certified as a trauma professional, as well as trained in EMDR. In her free time, Jacqueline enjoys spending time with family and reconnecting with nature through outdoor activities like camping and kayaking. Welcome, Jacqueline. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Hi, Renita. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. <laughs> I, I said first question, but it's really two two questions, two or three questions. But first question I have for you, Jacqueline, of course, is what was the process to become a certified trauma professional, CTP? What does that certification entail and what are you able to do with it? So a certified trauma professional is basically a really fancy way to say that I am a trauma-informed therapist. It means that I took a couple of courses that taught me about the different levels of trauma. It taught me about, right, the polyvagal and the nervous system and how the brain interacts when we engage in trauma. Um, you can do it as a three-day training and it counts towards your ECUs. Um, and it just really gives you kind of validity when you walk in the social work or therapeutic world to go, yes, I have a full understanding of trauma-based treatment. So it opens up a lot of doors if psychotherapy is a route that you choose to go. Yeah. And I heard you say trauma. Well, obviously, because we're talking about your certification in trauma, but mm -hmm. I was thinking today, and I know we're going to get into your social work journey, but I was thinking today, Jacqueline, being a therapist is hard, holding space. Mm -hmm. And if you then are specializing in dealing with clients who are dealing with a a lot of trauma, I can only imagine how much more difficult that work is for you. Do you want to dig into that just a little bit? So yes, being a therapist is hard. It is a, I will tell people it's a full contact sport. I'm using my mind. I'm using my body. I'm using my spirit to fully sit and hold space and find light in kind of the darkness. Um, make self-care that much more important makes routine and setting up right different systems to help decompress so important. Um, it really focuses on realizing you're only, right? I'm going to quote you for a minute. I'm only as good as I am willing to go. And the practices that I'm engaging in are the same ones that I'm going to ask my clients to do. It's a real kind of fluid kind of conversation that you have to have. We have to be really honest and really know where your limits are and how to hold and decompress in a way that's really productive. Um, so that's always an important part when looking at trauma in specific, but any kind of psychotherapy. I think 
just more mindful when you know, okay, I'm a trauma professional. They're coming to me for right that trauma dump sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking about trauma dump this week, really. And I was, I was thinking about it within the context of compassion fatigue, right? And for our audience out there who may not know what vicarious trauma is or compassion fatigue, is that part of the training you get with the, when you receive the certified trauma professional certification and, or is that something that you've kind of just had to learn? And then again, I love the word that you use decompress. How do you decompress from vicarious trauma and or compassion fatigue? So it's not something that is taught in the trauma um, certification. It's not, but it's something from when I started my journey, I started knowing I wanted to do psychotherapy. So I've always worked alongside fellow LMSWs and doctors and right your um, other professionals. And all of them would always talk about, right? This is how we take care of ourselves. This is a sign that you're hitting the fatigue. These are ways that I decompress. There were always very like, these are the rules to the game and you need to kind of install them. I've been really lucky to have people to really help guide me as far as that compassion fatigue and the issues that kind of show up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can get rough out here for a social worker. <laughs> <laughs> it can't. I know you were about to go into your social work journey. So I'm, before I keep asking uh, questions about your, your trauma experience, I'll let you dig into that. And then if we circle back around to uh, the certified trauma uh, certification, I would love to dig into that a little bit more. So Jacqueline, start wherever you want to, where did your social work journey begin? I think so. I think my social work journey started really young. Um, my mother is actually a LCSW and she went back to school when I was a young girl, probably third or fourth grade. And I can remember being fourth grade, fifth grade and her bringing a abnormal psych book home and me just falling in love with the book, just loving all the different things being like, oh, look, like, oh, this is where it sits. And I've always had a love for psychology. I thought, okay, I was going to be a teacher. I want to be a third grade teacher. That didn't work out. But I wanted to be a psychologist. That didn't fit just right. And then one of my professors like, maybe try social work. See if that fits. And I fought with it for a while because you don't want to grow up to be like your mom. No one wants to do that. And yet I went into, right, introduction to social work and everything just felt so natural. And it was one of those like, yeah, like this isn't, I fully believe social workers aren't made, they're really built. It's one of those, like, if it's a calling, you naturally just fall into it. And naturally the path just starts building on itself and it becomes something really beautiful, right? But even when I started, I still wanted to work with kids. Um, I did my undergraduate with Peggy Baltimore, who's a play therapist and thought, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Found out that wasn't the path, right? on and the story just keeps going I kept trying things on and they didn't fit didn't quite fit and then my master's level I went and I did my internship on Fort Benning and I fell in love I just fell in love with military with their families with the principles that they hold and found that I was really good with right the post-traumatic stresses and the MST military sexual assaults and that I naturally just fell into it and found a groove that I just thrived in. And ever since then, I've worked alongside military personnel, just 
processing these bigger traumas, getting trying to get as big and bad in it as I possibly can. Excellent. All these years, I just made some assumptions because you are so good with military personnel and the treatment processes that I've witnessed you um, do with that particular population. I assumed you had a military background and or were a military spouse. Mm -hmm. And to learn that it all came from your MSW internship? Partially, yes. My grandfather was in the Navy. Um, I have uncles who were also military. I grew up in Aberdeen, which is right Aberdeen Proving Ground. So I was always kind of surrounded by military. And there was always like kind of like we were always kind of rub shoulders, but it was always kind of like a, OK, military's over there. I'm a civilian over here. There's like a divide that sat there. Um, and yet I found a really empathetic piece when I was working hand in hand where I'm like, oh, this is where I've been supposed to be the whole time. Um, so it just most of my social work journey was very serendipitous where I wasn't sure where I was going, but the universe always just kind of led me to the right place at the right time to help kind of mold me to the moment that I'm at right now. Like it's very almost comical when you look back at the timeline, you're like, oh, you thought you were doing this? Uh, try again, right? Or do something completely different. Um, but it's been really beautiful. I've really enjoyed, right, this journey as I'm on it. I love that. And I love that I've been part of some of the pieces of your journey because I know when there was a really tough part <laughs> and now to see where you are now, it's just like mm -hmm. all of that was building to where you are now. So that's absolutely good. I have two things I want to um, lean into. And so the first one is, wow, your mother is an LCSW. I did not know that. And you're the second person that I've had the, the honor of interviewing who had a family member who was a you know bona fide social worker, but it sounds like just like with the other person I interviewed, your mother didn't push you into this. You she allowed you to be called by it. And I think there's I think there's important, right? That you're not doing this because, like you said, your mother did it, but it truly was something that you were called into because then that is where you find the passion and the caring and the diminished uh, compassion fatigue because you know this is really where you want to go or where, where you want to be. Can you speak to being raised by a social worker? <laughs> it might be part of why I'm so good at what I do. I will give her full credit for that because she always did like the whole person approach. She was always using terminology because if you ever meet a social worker, when you meet a social worker, it is who we genuinely are. We generally show up in a wholehearted way. So I don't know if my mom ever took off her social work hat. I don't. And it was always like, okay, well, what are you feeling right now? And what's kind of showing up? And hang on, let's do some mindfulness. We're getting right. So naturally, there was like those inner weaves that I was able, once I got into school, to go, oh, wait, here's the deeper stuff that I didn't even realize. My mom was social working me my entire life. How kind of cool is this? And yet, right, that pull of like, but I want to make sure that this is authentically who I am. Because my mother has always been really mindful of being true to yourself. Whatever that looks like, being authentic is the most important thing you can do. So finding out me and my mom are so much alike was also a really cool part of the journey, too. That is really cool, Jacqueline. I love that. 
The second thing I wanted to lean into with, you know, you describing your first part of your social work journey is trying things on. I often say social work is a broad profession and I have had so much fun <laughs> of the last uh, two decades trying different types of social work on and being like, oh, I did that for a couple of years and I'm doing this for a couple of years. And sometimes um, people think that when, oh, I didn't stay in this for 10 years, I must, you know, I must have failed, but really social work allows you because it's so broad to play, you know, mm -hmm. play in the field a little bit and, and figure out what is, what are the better populations for you to work on? Do you mind digging in a little bit on being able to try things on um, within the field of social work? Yeah, of course. I would, I would argue that's the best part of social work. You choose any other mental health field and you've just pivoted yourself in one lane. That's it. You just got one lane. In social work, we get to do kind of a little bit of everything. Like literally the sky is the limit and you're always growing and always evolving, which to me was a huge reason why social work was such a good fit. So I was able to start going, okay, I think I want to do art therapy and I want to work with kids and let's try that on and let's realize right my personality does not mesh with some adverse parent personalities right and okay this isn't the right fit but okay maybe maybe I want to work defects for a while and yeah no that doesn't work either I don't like the agency it doesn't fit quite right all right well let me do right my internship on Fort Benning and oh that really fits but right that's a higher level. So I have to do some entry level work. Let me go to a psych ward. Let me try that on for a second. See what that's like. That's a lot of fun. Mm, maybe not right for me, right? And private practice and agency work and being able to really look at different facets and see mental health from a full 360 view. As I'm doing my journey, I'm able to see like, okay, here is right, the psychometrics of things. And here's right, the research of things. And here all the different avenues and being able to know, okay, what fits best for me? How do I try it on and then build it on? Because when I look at the degree, social work, right? Even my master's level, when I first started, I got kind of mad because I'm like, I got a whole master's degree. Now I got to take this test, right? And I take the test and I'm kind of baseline. And now I get to play, build my career. I get to go, you know what? I want to be certified trauma professional. And I want to do EMDR and maybe I want to do, right, I don't know, somatic work is probably my next. And I get to build it. It's almost this degree is like building with Legos. I get to make my career whatever I want it to be. And if at any point in time, I'm like, yeah, I really like music, right? I still have a thing for art therapy. I can build on to that. And it just adds to what I'm able to give my clients. I think it's one of the most beautiful and amazing careers you could ever have. You are speaking my love language. <laughs> I love it. Social work is my love language. And I love that, that it's the, and I, and I talked to some, Oh, I'm going to go here for a second with you. Jackie, is, I know this is not your part of the story, but I think it's important for our audience to kind of hear this because sometimes when, especially, you know, here in the South, uh, I have a colleague who's doing some great work on getting the numbers from ASWB in regards to our, our pass rates for the, the LMSW and LSCSW exam. And here in the South, uh, brown and black women in particular uh, are struggling with passing that test, you know? And sometimes they want to give up and then go to these certifications. Whereas what I just heard you say and wanna encourage 
folks out there who may be listening still work towards that LMSW and then let that be the foundation of the building blocks of the other certifications that you are getting because that really makes you a lot more marketable, right? That's exactly So it. I appreciate you using that analogy. It was really, really good. Jacqueline, I, you know, when we started the conversation and I just kind of wanted to dig into that just a little bit more, how did you know that you always want to be a psychotherapist? And then secondly, how did you know, because a lot of people think about social work and, you know, there's the stereotypical thoughts that they have. A lot of folks don't realize that social workers are also psychotherapists. How did you know, first question, that you wanted to be a psychotherapist and second question, that social work would allow you to do that? So I won't say that I always knew I wanted to be a psychotherapist. I knew I always wanted to do something with psychology. I knew that when I was right trying things on in like that baseline degree, that a lot of them felt really regimented to me, right? And as such, I didn't really like that. I don't like being a one trick pony. I wanna have as many as possible. And as I'm kind of talking to my mom, she's like, well, you know, a social worker, well, you know, a social worker, well, you know, I do some psychotherapy with my social work degree and I have lots of friends who also do so, right? And as I'm talking to write your LPCs or your family therapists, they're like, if I could do it all over again, I do social work, right? So as I was kind of collecting intel, trying to figure out exactly how to build my degree, social work just kept popping up. Like I said, I think it's a calling where like, Maybe I wanted to do something else, but it just kept coming up where it's like, no, this is really where you're supposed to be. So I think as you do research and kind of dig into it, you see how much value it has, even with other professionals in the field, how they're like, yeah, social work is really the way to go. And I hear that all the time with the LPCs that I work with and with the family marriage therapists, all of them go, if I could do it over again, I would do social work. So as I was asking around and that kept showing up, I'm like, okay, well, social work it is then. Perfect, perfect. You know, one of the things that when um, I'm talking to folks who are trying to decide what their major is going to be, I say go on Career Builder or Munster or Indeed and look and see what degree and or credential are these jobs asking for and -hmm. then come back and talk to me because one of the things that they're going to see is the MSW, the LMSW, the LCSW. And I think that's probably what some of your LPC and LMFT colleagues are also mm-hmm. seeing is that we're everywhere. Yep. <laughs> I love it. it. <laughs> we are everywhere. So we heard where you were, how you are still even, I loved how you framed part of your social work journey in answering the question of trying things on. Where do you see yourself going, Jacqueline, with your within your social work journey? I'm not exactly sure. I'm still trying to figure that out. I want to become really good at my trade. Right now, I am about a four-year veteran out of school, and I am still forming kind of my blanket, so to speak, and finding what ties and ribbons and strings I use in my practice and becoming really knowledgeable at trauma at a base level and patient care at a base level. Um, I'm hoping one day private practice I'm hoping one day some advocacy work, and I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I've toyed around with potentially going back and doing like law or policy or something like that, because I really do think when we look at the system as a whole, it's a top down approach. And someone's got to be advocating for some of the systems that might not be serving the community that we serve. 
So that's something that I've toyed with, but nothing is really foundational because if there is one thing I can tell you for sure in my social work journey, I make plans and the universe laughs hysterically at me because that's adorable. We got better plans over here, girl. Let's go. So I've learned to just be really open and just where things lead, they lead. I love that. And I appreciate that so much. And I've seen that for you is that you definitely will, because because of the type of personality you are, you are a high achiever. You know, I love surrounding myself with high achievers. You, I think that uh, the tendency for high achievers is to create a plan. This is the direction I'm going in. And I've seen with you, Jacqueline, that your universe absolutely says, no, ma'am, <laughs> that is not what we have for you. And then what you get is so much better than what you were ever thinking you were going to do. And so mm -hmm. I love that one of the lessons that you've learned on the social journey is to just stay open because this is a big playground and you may not even realize, oh, there's a better toys over there. Yeah. So I love that for you. Um, Jacqueline, who would you say are, was your favorite social work instructor and or most impactful social work mentor? That is a loaded question and you know it. <laughs> um. I would tell you in my journey, I have had the honor of having some wonderful mentors. I've had Peggy Baltimore's and Major Imes and Dr. Johns who have showed up and really helped shape me to who I am. But if we're honest, none of this would be possible without one of my professors, um, Dr. Duffy. She, I want to try to do this without crying, okay? She has made me the social worker that I am today, through and through. When I first started this journey, I was down and out, and I wasn't even sure if this was the right route for me. And there was a lot of times where I wanted to throw in the towel. I was done. Wasn't worth it. It's too hard. And that woman saw something in me I couldn't even see in myself. She pushed me and encouraged me in ways that I knew walking into her class, she was going to kick my butt because she was one of one of the many gatekeepers that I ran into. But I also knew that she was going to be compassionate and loving and I was going to be one hell of a social worker by taking her class. I can't even begin to put into words how grateful I am that I was able to attend her classes and how monumental and how even now in the back of my head, kiss your beautiful brain pops in all the time, which is something she used to say. She would give us something and like we wouldn't be able to get it when someone would solve it. And she'd be like, kiss your beautiful brain. And now I'm over here just saying it to myself all the same time. Um, so Dr. Duffy, I really, I owe her everything. And I just owe her everything. So Dr. Duffy, she was one of those teachers. People made a profession out of not taking her class because if you were gonna go in that class, you were gonna work. You were gonna earn that grade and you were gonna do it but she did it in a way because she loved social work so much. She loved it so much that you were going to get, you literally could see her like taking her heart, like breaking a little piece off and going here, this is for you. You could literally see it in the class. Like she was so phenomenal, even though yes, she was definitely a gatekeeper. And yes, a lot of people who shouldn't have been social workers didn't make it through her class. But, but yes, I've had a lot of wonderful, wonderful mentors, none like her. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yes. And I did hear that people made a profession out of not taking her. <laughs> so how rewarding that when you did and you passed. Mm -hmm. 
Oh man, that must feel like such an accomplishment. Like, okay, I'm supposed to be here. And one of the things that I've heard you say, Jacqueline, about taking Dr. Duffy's class and and being in her lived experience is after having taken that class um, and having to work as hard as you guys had to, and she taught psychopathology just for mm-hmm. those who may not know, um, you feel very competent as a social worker. And, I, you know, just kind of digging in, I don't want to lean away from that at all. I want to dig in just a little bit more with this. Did you know, because I heard you say you didn't always know you want to be a psychotherapist and your mom had a little bit in that where she would kind of, you know, feed you a little bit, but it also feels like after taking psychopathology with Dr. Duffy and feeling so competent and knowing that you know this DSM very well backwards and forth, I mean, because you had to know where the page numbers of stuff. Yes. I know. I remember the yes. <laughs> Y'all had to know the page numbers on stuff. Do you feel like that really cemented your path towards being a psychotherapist? Yes, I absolutely mm-hmm. do. I think it's cemented. This is exactly where I need to be because lots of people were, were picking up the DSM and getting really overwhelmed and I'm opening it like, this is so cool. And look at how we're connecting it and look at how she's showing us how all of this connects so, yes, absolutely. I think her class, both in undergraduate and graduate, because I got to take her for both, it really was like that universal, like, yes, this is where you're supposed to be. And yes, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And to have her be so encouraging and loving as, right, everyone's like, okay, we're doing this, made all the difference, is literally probably the only reason that I graduated with my degree was because of how she presented the class. And it's one of the first classes you take and if you're advanced standing and you're advanced standing gear. So there is no avoiding that Mm -mm. particular. And I'm like, and when you said, I heard, I've heard you say that in the past, taking people made a career out of not taking her class. I'm like, how? It was a mandatory class. Everyone, (laughs) everyone had to take it. So uh, if you want to be a social worker and graduate from Troy University, you had to take that particular class. So I love that you um, finally got the opportunity to give her her flowers. I love that. Jacqueline, now that you know all that you know in regards to the social work journey, what are some things that you would take with you um, on this journey? I would take an ongoing curious and open mind. It would be the number one thing I would take is realizing that what social work is presented in school and what it is once boots meet the ground are not the same, that this profession gets to be whatever you decide to make it. And quite literally, whatever you decide to make it. Um, So an open mind is something that would have to go on. An ongoing passion for learning and growing is something that I plan to continue to take on. Also an understanding of self-compassion right? The same amount of love, the same amount of patience, the same amount of what I give to my patient, giving that to myself and realizing self-determination is a real thing and accepting that self-determination is a real thing. Some people will only go as far as they're willing to go. And that's not a representation of who you are as a provider. That is a representation of their journey and not to take it personal. I would continue to remind myself and take that with me in this journey. Oh, such a great answer. I love that. 
you know, in one of my early interviews, someone said, and this just, your answer just then reminded me of that, her response, social work, being a social worker has changed her value system. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you feel like, I, I see you shaking your head. Can you talk to me about how do you feel like social work has changed your value system? I think social work has changed my, I know social work has changed my life. I know that as far as my values of right and wrong, that has opened up. My compassion is on a whole other level. Understanding acceptance, whole other level. Um, cultural competency is a really, really big one. That's at a whole other level. And there's a lot of like, wait, there's an educational answer for that one. Actually, you need to understand over here. So in all, I think I am more open-minded to the world around me at any given point in time. There's not like this rigid, this is the box that it's supposed to fit in that I maybe started with that doesn't exist anymore. It can't. I feel like if you do this job correctly, you can't have that rigid system. It just doesn't fit. Great answer. And I think too, rigidity causes burnout, right? Mm -hmm. Rigidity. And if you find yourself, you know, we're just talking to the audience right now. If you find yourself being rigid with yourself and our clients, you know, to do some self-reflection and, and be like, why am I being rigid? What is it that I'm trying to control here? And I love you, love that you said, you know, one of the NASW values of regarding self-determination and are we allowing our clients to be the expert in their life? You know, mm -hmm. are they, are we thinking that we're the expert in their life? And then how does that change us on a cellular level as people? How does allowing others to have self-determination both professionally and personally how does that change me literally on a cellular level so I love that great answers Jacqueline what would you leave behind like you know I know you were raised by a social worker you had an amazing mentor in Dr. Duffy you've you've tried some things on so mm -hmm. like okay you got all of this what now would you leave behind and it doesn't have to be anything that you would leave behind before uh, you became a social worker. I would love to hear, you know, as we, you're, you're one of my last interviews before we enter the new year. What would you leave behind that you're not taking with you in 2024 as a social worker? I think expectations. If, right, the short answer, expectations for what I think this is supposed to look like, both personally and professionally, expectations of, well, they're doing it that way, so why am I not doing it that way? That self-love and self-compassion, um, leave that behind. The idea that just because I run into a brick wall one time, that means it's a stop sign, leave that behind. Because if you do this profession right, you will run into gatekeepers. That is the name of the game, but it's because we love the profession so much that we have to be kind of tested by fire sometimes. If you allow it, it will help shape you into a bigger, better, stronger version of what you could ever dream of being, right? So the idea that, right, oh, I hit a brick wall, that means I'm stopping. No, it means the universe is redirecting you into someplace more beautiful, more accustomed to where you're supposed to be, right? It's the ongoing journey part of our profession is we're always changing. We're always evolving. We're always growing. So to, right, like we talked about earlier, shortchange yourself. This is what it's supposed to look like. It can only look like this. 
leaving that behind. And that's something I've really learned the hard way because I do a lot of, no, it's supposed to look like this. I'm supposed to be a therapist and we're not supposed to be doing this, but it works. So I guess this is what we're doing now. Um, so a lot of that ideal of what things should be and just allowing things to be what they are is probably what I'm bringing into the new year. I love that answer. And I think I kind of want to dig in a little bit, Jacqueline, because what I know to be true, well, obviously, because we've talked about it, it's in your bio, you do a lot of trainings, right? You go to a lot of trainings, you're trying to be the best that you can be. What we know about going to these CEU trainings is they give you very regimented ways of doing it. But then just like what you, you know, spoke of how we taught you in, in the classroom and then you get, like you said, boots on the ground. That's not what this thing looks like. As you mm -hmm. even continue doing your continuing educations, getting these certifications, they're giving you these very rigid ways of doing this therapeutic model. How mm -hmm. then does one, and I think this is also, we're going to segue into your final question, but how does one make what you're learning your own with that client. I hope that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So during my time on base, the second half of my assignment, I was in the intensive outpatient program. And I can remember my mentor, Lieutenant Harvey going, we're making a blanket. That's what you're learning to do here. You're making a blanket. And each time you learn a new skill, you'll take the parts of that skull, take the parts of dialectical behavioral therapy, for instance. And I'm not so hot on wise mind or on wise man sometimes, but I use wise mind all the time. This is what you're feeling. This is what you think. Mush it together. What does it equal? That's part of my blanket. Other people hate it. Other people will use right cognitive processing or cognitive behavioral instead. I take the parts that feel authentic to me, that feel like they fit for the patient right out of that regimented program. And I go, this is part of how I do what I do. This is part of the art of therapy is creating a creature or creation or blanket that is all your own, that is authentic to yourself. And as a reflection, you'll be more beneficial to your client. Because something I have learned in my time doing therapy is authenticity in the therapy room is one of the biggest rapport building and healing properties that you can get. If you can authentically show up, your patient will authentically show up and that's where healing really begins. So taking the things that serve me, that serve my client, pushing it together and then presenting it, but always realizing I, I can go back to that training. Wait, maybe there's something more when I'm doing that treatment plan I need to look at and tailoring the parts of those programs per client, per how. I move things. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. I I want to say uh, two things. I remember I did. I rarely got interviewed. I've been I've been very <laughs> blessed <laughs> that people seek me out for for employment. But I remember it, this job sought me out. But they did interview me, and I remember the CEO asking me a question about what type of therapeutic uh, approach do do I use. And I was like, eclectic, <laughs> because we take a little bit of all of it. And mm -hmm. then whoever is sitting in front of us, that's, you know, what works for them just works mm -hmm. for them. And so I can't say I use DBT or C CBT or whatever all the BTs are. I <laughs> I use a little bit of everything depending on who's sitting in front of me. And, I, and that I just was reminded of that. And at that same job, we were trained, this was years ago, 
on motivational interviewing. And I remember hating it. I probably could go back to it now and find a lot of benefits from it, but that just wasn't a therapeutic model for me. But I know that there are a lot of therapists who use it that find great benefit from it. And so I love that you said that, like getting a little bit out of all of it and the ones that fit you as a therapist, using those with the people that are sitting in front of you and being authentic. I'm not going to use motivational interviewing if that is not an authentic expression of myself because mm -hmm. our clients can sniff that out in a heartbeat. Oh, mm -hmm. she's being insincere or fake. And mm -hmm. so they're not going to give you what you need to help them progress. And so very, very good answer, Jacqueline. I absolutely love that. Do you want to, you want to respond to that or? I think that's part of the ongoing journey, to be honest with you. And mind you, right, education is my love language. If I could somehow make, if I could go to school and get paid for it, I would do it, right? So knowing, okay, if I'm growing in this field, knowing all the different approaches and grabbing what I can is important, but it's important, especially if you're a new therapist, to not think I can only do DBT. And for some reason, this isn't fitting for the patient. This is supposed to be one size fits all because you're working, right? Therapy is sometimes like playing chess, with your patient who's sitting in the room. I'll have, right, a veteran come in and I'm like, okay, cognitive processing, that's his powerhouse right now. He's really cognitively processing and that's the framework I'm gonna work off of versus, right, I have a military spouse and she's coming in and she's very just showing a lot of emotion. Okay, hang on, we're gonna use a lot of DBT. We're not disinvalidating those emotions, but also what are the facts and how do we validate and where are we sitting? So I think that, right, realizing it's, kind of each person, I'm playing a mental chess almost of, okay, how do we cognitively reframe and validate and move? Realizing as a new therapist, it's not going to be one size fits all. It's not supposed to. If it was, then a robot could do it. And we're right. There's a real validity of that human connection and that rapport that we build and being authentic in the room. Again, our code of ethics say importance of human relationship. It's the mm -hmm. core of who this, what this profession is. And so amazing answer. I'm just, I'm just smiling from ear to ear, Jacqueline. And, you know, just getting into our last question here, you are just such a light, right? You are such a light. And I, I even was reminded and learned um, today. And so I thank you for that. But, you know, when I think about a person being a light, the song, and, you know, my sister's a music therapist, so I'm always thinking about music. <laughs> This song, this little light of mine comes to mind. I'm going to let it shine. Can you talk to the audience about where having the courage to let your light shine comes from? And can you give some advice to the social workers out there or even helping professionals out there that are creating their own paths like you talked about and learning how to harness their own light in their own specific way? So I think when we look at creating our own pathway, it's important to realize that it starts with us. If we're being honest, especially with psychotherapy, but in any helping profession, it starts with us. We can only take our patients where they need to be as far as we can go. So if I stop my growth, that means I'm stunting my patient next to me. So when I'm starting my path, I want to look inward. I want to see what's authentic for me, what fits for me, where I might need to do some patching myself, right? And being really mindful if this is a two-hand sport, if mentally, physically, emotionally, I am showing up for my patient, then I have to show up for me first. That way I can give and I'm not pouring from an empty cup. So being really mindful to start with self, but also being really mindful 
that your light will come the more you try things on. There is a trial and error to this profession and all of us go through it, even though, right, some of us don't like to show face and go, yeah, I tried that didn't work, right? Trying on and seeing what fits best for you. And naturally, when you start doing that, the right people find you, right? I am a result of a lot of really good mentors who saw something in me I didn't even see and kind of helped grow that light, gave me the different skills and the different professions, right, that I need to be able to engage. The more you keep walking towards what your calling is, the more your light will glow, the more you'll start creating a path. You'll turn around, you're like, oh, wow, look at this. I just did this and I didn't even realize it. So being really gentle and authentic with yourself when we look at creating your own path and shining your light and really just showing a compassionate piece, the parts where like, oh, I don't want my light like that is an important part of it. But enjoying the journey, neither the less, because this social work journey is one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And I have other social work friends who say the same thing. It looks different for all of us. Doesn't make it any less beautiful. Mm. So good. So good. You know, I got to do two analogies. Okay, I'm going there, right? So one of the things that I talk to people about, I don't know who it is, just people, <laughs> is there's different quality lights, right? So in some neighborhoods, you can go and they have their outside lights on in the evening and the moths and the mosquitoes are just, you know, floating to it. And then you go to other neighborhoods and, you know, say what you will, whatever the neighborhood is, there's a better quality light and there are no moths or mosquitoes floating to that light. And one of the things when you were just talking, I was thinking, be a better quality light. I want to be a better quality light so mm -hmm. that who I'm supposed to attract is attracted to me quality. I want to attract quality to me. So how can I then be a better quality light? And that is through what you're talking about, doing the self-reflection, doing the work. I heard you repeatedly you didn't say it, but you said it, do your own work, do your mm -hmm. own work first so that you can be present and uh, expert for your, with your client. And then the other analogy that I want to use that I use all the time is be a bonfire. When you show up as your authentic self and you are that bonfire, then those people who are looking for you to get warmth, they'll find you, right? Mm -hmm. So be a better quality light and be a bonfire. And you got me all excited. I'm just excited. I'm ready to be a light. <laughs> This is so great, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for saying yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing experience. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast.